In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in the panels, in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, on the hills, and on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the word of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. Sent him, And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, on the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to be beginning a series in Haggai. It's just a two-week series called Broken Down House, where we're going to be discussing this uh, short prophetic book uh, that we have in the Old Testament. Uh, Now, just really quickly, I'm curious, uh, how many, by show of hands, of you have heard uh, a series or a sermon on the book of Haggai? Just curious. Maybe all of you. Okay, so maybe like some. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those books that maybe folks tend to look over. And uh, when I was thinking about uh, preaching this book, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with a lady one time. Uh, I was uh, actually, it was while I was here, there was a lady that came up to me, um, this was a while back, and she said, you know, I- I'm really confused as to why you keep on preaching through the Old Testament books. Because we do that, we'll preach through Old Testament and New Testament alike. And she says, why would you spend so much time, why would you waste so much time on the Old Testament when there are all those weird stories, and really the good stuff's in the New Testament anyway. I said, well, you know, that, that's a really good question, and seminary didn't really prepare me to answer that question. Uh, but I understand the heart of it. And I said, we well, you know, that to be honest with you, that's a, a really good question, and, and, and here's why. I have a number of answers I could give you, uh, but you probably don't want to hear the 10-point pastor answer, so let me just give you one. I think that we should read the Bible in the same way that the Apostle Paul read the Bible. And you'll remember that the Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. So if you're talking to a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament about why it's important to read the Old Testament, then it sounds like a good place to start, right? And so Paul, if you look at him, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, which Malachi appropriately quoted before the service, 
Uh, He tells us that all Scripture is literally God-breathed and profitable. Every word of it for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and the training in righteousness that the man or woman of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. Now catch this. When he says all Scripture is God-breathed there, he is at least thinking of the Old Testament, including books like Haggai. And he says, Christian, listen, if you want to be faithful to God, you need books like Haggai. You you need the Old Testament prophets. You need the Old Testament history books to understand who God is. Because the same God that the people of Israel served is the same God that we serve. And if you want to understand the New Testament, then you need to know the Old Testament. So as we come to this book, uh, I believe that it is a perfect place to just pronounce and and, and just uh, scream aloud. We believe that all of the Bible is inspired by God. And we need to fix that in our minds as we consider uh, this, one of the shortest books of the Bible, a minor prophet, not because it's less important than the major prophets. It's not like the minor leagues in baseball and the major leagues, right? Uh, It's minor because it's smaller. And so it's a smaller book. In fact, it just has uh, two chapters, a total of 38 verses, uh, less verses than Isaiah has chapters. It's a very short book. And, And the whole time period, that this book resides in is actually just four months uh, beginning in August of 520 B.C. In fact, uh, commentator Herbert Wolf, uh, a guy who studies these books a lot, speaks of Haggai, and he says, Haggai is one of the most minor of the minor prophets. Very small, insignificant. Indeed, one of the most despised by others. And yet, God breathed and profitable for you and me. So I'm excited that we're going to mine out of this short little book over the next couple of weeks what God has for us. And I hope that you're ready in your hearts for what God has to say to you. But I think if we're going to understand this book, I think that we need to set it in context. Uh, We need to understand a little bit of the background of what's going on in Israel to understand why this prophecy matters. And to do that, I'm going to carry you through a little bit of history of Israel. And for some of you, catch this, it's going to be review, and I know that. For others of you, this is going to be brand new. But just hang with me, because I think all of it's going to help you understand why this matters. Well, we'll start off, as you think about Israel, uh, what we know is, is that God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and then some years later, God gave Israel a king after his own heart. A God-loving king. Uh, What a great thing that is. Uh, They had a king who loved God, King David, who God made a covenant with and said, uh, just as Israel is my people, uh, you will be my king. I'm making a covenant with you as my king. I will be your God and you will be my king. And it's an everlasting covenant. I will not leave or forsake you. You're a unique kind of king. God didn't allow David to build him a temple though. Even though David loved to worship God, he said, you are not the one that's going to be allowed to build a temple for me. That's for your son Solomon. And so Solomon, his son, got to build a temple for God. He got to build him a beautiful and glorious temple to worship God and to honor Him. And this temple, of course, was built in Jerusalem of Judah. Uh, That small people that David came from. It was the city of God where God said in this place and this house, this temple, I will dwell with my people. I will live with you in your presence, in your midst. But after Solomon, what we find is is that Israel actually split, right? So you have the, the north 
Ten tribes, they split from the southern tribe of Judah. And so for the rest of their history, what we find is they're actually in many ways enemies going back and forth between one another until 722 BC when Assyria swoops down out of the north and conquers Israel. And then in 586, what we find is, is that Babylon comes in and takes over the southern uh, country of, of Judah. And so what we have in this history of Israel is really a people who have turned to God, have a house of God, have God's king, and then they turn against God. And for the rest of their history, they have civil war, they have external war, they find all of a sudden everything that they found their identity in destroyed and wiped off the map along with the house of God. Now if you're talking about a bad day, that's a bad day. If you're talking about an identity crisis, That was an identity crisis for the people of Israel and the people of God. So here we are in the book of Haggai, a book that is a prophecy that came 50 years later when in 539 Cyrus of Persia came in and took over, defeated Babylon, took control of Jerusalem. And we find in Ezra 1 that the Holy Spirit actually inspired Cyrus, this Persian non-Christian king, to actually make an edict that says, I want you to go and to rebuild the temple of God. Now, how crazy is that? A non-Christian says, I have been led by your God's Spirit to tell you to go back and build God's house because God's coming back. He's going to be with you. And it's there that we are told that Zerubbabel Uh, led uh, an envoy of exiles back to Judah, a small remnant of people from that great nation that used to be Israel. And they built immediately an altar on the site of Solomon's temple and reinstituted sacrifices as they prepared to rebuild the temple. But but what we find is, is that quickly enemies came in and prevented the work, but the enemies soon vanished. And what we find is, is that Uh, Darius of Persia, the third king from the Persian Empire that was over them, took over and returned stability to the land. Now here's the problem that Haggai is coming into. They've experienced, since those enemies attacked them, 16 years of peace. And yet, nobody has gone back to work on the house of God, the temple. It's still left in utter disrepair. This centerpiece of their national identity, this centerpiece of their spiritual worship of God is gone. And for 16 years, they have ignored it. And as Ezra tells us, it's at this point that God sent Haggai and Zechariah to remind God's people to get back to work on God's house. But make no mistake, as you read this book, this is not a book that is about bricks and mortar. That's not this book. Now, it'll talk about rebuilding a physical temple. But what the real issue at heart here is not a physical building. This book is about an Old Testament revival. It's about an awakening of the people of God. People who have become cold, have become absolutely tired, and asleep at the wheel of their spiritual lives, they are awakened here. And so what we find is a good Old Testament revival of God's people to their God. Now let me just ask you, what about you this morning? As you think about Israel, and you're thinking in your mind, how do they become distracted from this God who has made such powerful displays before them? 
I'm just wondering this morning, what about you? Could you maybe be distracted from God this morning as well? You know, we live in a world that is full of booby traps that seek to distract us from God. And the distractions, they are plenty. Just think about it. Just watch the news. And I watch the news now and I turn it on and I'm watching all these different channels about what's going on all over the world and I'm trying to figure out like who's the worst sinner and who's guilty and who's going to die next and who's responsible and I find myself emotionally just wanting to crawl up and curl up and ball up and get away from it all, right? And I'm distracted from a powerful God and I feel weak and unable to make any kind of a difference. And how often does your phone beep, ring, or vibrate? For any of the half dozen social media accounts that you have, they're telling you exactly what's going on with a thousand of your closest friends in a given moment. You're distracted. You're thinking about it. And then there's the next thing. And then there's Netflix. And relationships. And work. Which not all are bad, but, but all can, if not viewed rightly, distract us from God's powerful presence. Are you distracted this morning? And we're all guilty and in danger of being distracted. And Haggai says in his book, God, this is the good news, God awakens His people to work with a vision of Himself. And that's what God, I think, wants to do for us this morning. He wants to awaken us to get to work for the glory of God with a fresh vision of Himself, with a fresh message that He has given from His Word. And so we're going to see this uh, throughout this book. Now, the first thing that we uh, need to do is we need to consider the problem that Haggai speaks of in verses 1 to 6. We need to consider the problem. And the problem is that God's people are distracted. They're distracted. Now, let's read those first two verses again to give us more context as to what's going on here in this book. Uh, notice what Haggai says. He says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Not time yet to rebuild the house. So here we have this, this Persian king Darius, and he's Come in. He's reigning. Uh, we know the date is August 29th, 520 B.C. They tell us right at the front. That's what that translates into. And when Haggai calls out, he speaks to two leaders at the very beginning of this book. Notice that he calls out a king and the high priest. He calls out a king, the king and the high priest. The king is Zerubbabel, who's called a, at this time, governor of Judah. In other words, not full king, not really full power. He is under the Persian king. So he's really just sort of a figurehead. He doesn't really have any kind of authority or power. He's not even a full-fledged king. It's kind of like Rinnikop. You know, he's not, doesn't have a real badge, doesn't have a real gun. And then he speaks to Joshua, who is the high priest. Now you remember Zerubbabel, the king, comes from the line of David. Joshua comes from the high priestly line. And they are the leaders of this people. But Though they have these great titles, do not be distracted from the reality that these guys lived in. They must have felt so small. I mean, Haggai hand delivers a message from God to a priest without a temple 
and a king without a throne. The high, the high God comes and speaks to them. And I'm guessing they felt insignificant before the people, could not help them with the authorities over them, could not protect them. But even worse, I bet they forgot, felt forgotten by God. Just think about it. They faced the civil wars and the wars with other nations. And now they probably feel a little bit more like mascots for the failure and the small people of God than that powerful king like David or, or that great priest like Aaron. And just, and just a side note, really important. They might have felt forgotten by God, but friends, what the Bible tells us is that God never forgets his people. God never forgets his people. But God's people, friends, they do forget him. We need to be aware of that. You know, the fight to remember God is a fight for the good of our souls and eternal joy that starts today. And they needed to be reminded, like the rest of the people, that God's people may have forgotten God, but God has not forgotten His people. They probably began to imagine that God was a small and weak God, just like they were a small and weak people. And they thought of God in this way when Haggai shows up with a message. But did you notice the name that God signs, He ascribes to this message that He sends to this weak and beaten people? You know, God has different names for Himself that describe different aspects of His character and nature because He has many uh, attributes of who He is. And He could have described Himself in a lot of different ways here. But when he comes to this little people, through this little prophet, through a few words, he uses the title, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the great, powerful God. A title that expresses that Israel's faithful God is himself all powerful. Catch this. It is not that he is a God who has power. He is the all powerful God who in himself is power. He's not just strong. He is strength. That's what this title means. You can believe that this was a welcome message to this small people who felt so defeated and hopeless. But notice the problem in verse 2. The problem that these people have is they are saying that the time has, has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Just think about it. It's been 16 years since Cyrus sent Israel with provisions to build the temple. And sure, enemies initially distracted them from rebuilding the temple, which symbolized their identity as God's people. Uh, and we find here uh, that they did not obey God and rebuild God's house so that they could meet with God on God's terms. And you might be wondering, so what's going to happen next? Well, God tells us in verses 3 to 6. This is what he, the words He speaks to His disobedient people. And you're thinking, okay, here's where He lays down the hammer. What does He say? Well, we see here that because Israelites are building their own houses, that's the reason that they haven't been building God's house. So he says, let me explain to you. He says in verse 3, Then, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Holy bag. 
Anybody seen a bag with holes in it? Anybody tried to like put water into a bag with holes in it? Does that work? It falls out, right? So God tells his people to consider their ways. In other words, God says their way of life says something about the way they view God. And friends, that's just as true today as it was then. The way, as we consider our ways, that we live our lives says something about the view of God that we have. If your life looks a certain way, it says something about the way you view God. If it looks another way, it says something about the way that you view God. Now, that's not bad advice, I don't think, for any of us. So let me just ask you this morning, if you were to look at your way of life, have you been distracted from paying attention to the distraction of your soul? In other words, have you not evaluated the fact, the reality, that your soul has been distracted by this magnificent vision of your great God? Have you taken account of your soul? You know, most of us wouldn't neglect paying attention to all kinds of things, like our checkbooks, right? Like we're going to pay attention to our checkbooks, see where our accounts are at. Uh, Most of us uh, would be really careful uh, during fantasy football season to make sure that we got the right players on our team at the right time. Uh, Some of us can't go 10 minutes without checking Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. And, And we are so easily distracted from actually paying attention and taking account of what's most important being our souls created by God in His image. And so here, we find that we have a people who have been distracted from the work that is before them. They're probably doing a lot of good things, but have been distracted from the most important thing. So, you know, this tells us that our way of life will tell us if we suffer from distraction. If you suffer from distraction, I I suffer from distraction really badly. I think I might have ADD or something. I think that's a real thing. And I I struggle with being distracted uh, in the same way that like Doug the dog from the movie Up. Have y'all ever seen that? It's like a talking dog, and uh, it's amazing that he can talk, but in the middle, all of a sudden, uh, he's speaking, and you're like, wow, this dog can talk, and all of a sudden, he's like, squirrel, right? Completely gets distracted and gives voice to it, and, and maybe my sermons feel that way sometime, and that's because that's the way my mind works, but you, you, you get distracted, right, by life, like you're trying to think out something important, and then all of a sudden, it's like, squirrel, my job. Or maybe in your prayer time, your prayer time is just a giant squirrel experience. Lord, I praise you because you are, oh man, i got to take the laundry out. And God, I want to thank you because of the way you answered this. Oh, wait a minute, I forgot to ask for, have I taken the car in to get the oil changed? Right? I just got distracted from the glory of God by an oil change. I mean, that's just the way we are. We're easily distracted. We're distracted from God and who He is by all sorts of things. Uh, the other day, um, Carrie uh, sent me a text and she said, Josh, could you please make sure that you bring the bunny rabbit in? Uh, you can't leave him out all day in a honey, 120 degree heat, right? 120. I was like, of course. And then I was like, you know, I got a meeting. And then I'm in the car. And then I'm at work. And then it's four o'clock. And I get this text message, another text message from Carrie that said, we're burying the bunny. And then she sent another one that said, just kidding. I got distracted. And my wife was just trying to remind me not to get distracted, right? Well, the same way, we don't need to get distracted 
from God. We don't need to be distracted from the things that are more important. See, we lose sight of ourselves as well when we lose sight of God. And if you really want to care for your soul, don't lose sight of God. Because when we lose sight of our, our, of God, our desires become greater, but we become smaller along with our view of God becoming smaller. Right? Our needs become God and God no longer has a voice in our lives. We shrink and God shrinks. And we become small-minded and unable to do much good for others when we are fixated on more of this world or more of our selfish desires than what God has made us for, which is something much, much bigger. It's Himself and the life that He's made us for. And what's distracted Israel from God's house? Well, some have said that they're distracted because they are too poor. And that's what Haggai's speaking of. Some say they're too poor, but I don't sense that that's the picture that Haggai draws for us here. See, Israel's efforts aren't squelched or stopped by being poor. They're diverted by their unquenchable thirst for more. That's what's got them distracted. That commentator Bruce Walkie said this way. He said this was the problem. They had, they had good, but the good life eluded them. They were not hungry, but neither were they satisfied. They were not, they were dressed, but they were not comfortable. See, they had sowed, they had seed to sow, food to eat, wine to drink, clothes to wear, but never enough of any of those. And they're too preoccupied with renovating their own homes to rebuild the house of God. God's people may have thought that God had forgotten them, but the reality is, the real reality for them, and maybe for you and me today sometimes, is that they had forgotten God. See, they sought satisfaction apart from God and it always left them hungrier. Are you hungrier today? Or do you find your ambition and your restlessness of your heart? Are, are, you, are you desirous? Are you thirsty? Could it be that maybe today the reason that you have those unmet desires is because you're just looking in the wrong place like Israel was? Sounds eerily similar to what Jesus said to His people on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33, where he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And He promises us that all of these things will be added unto you. Now what are these things that Jesus is talking about? He's talking about food to feed you and clothes to cover you and to care for you. He says God does that. Trust Him for it. Seek His kingdom. Make that the main priority. Worry about God's house and God's kingdom. Of course, for Jesus, uh, He tells us that there is something more that we have been made for than food that perishes and clothes that are eaten by moths. And Israel, they're a good reminder for us, they lost an ambition for God's kingdom. They lost an ambition and a desire for God's righteousness. And a future that is incredibly bright for the short-sighted pursuit of the happiness that this world could afford them. And he's saying, Haggai's saying, you're settling for too little. You've been made for much more. And do you think that that might apply to you and me? Well, I just want to ask you this morning, what's distracted you from God's kingdom with God's presence? What's captivated you this morning and distracted you from the greatness that God has for us? Does it, tell me, does, does the thing that you've settled for, does it compare to God's kingdom? And His righteousness? 
What's caused you to lose sight of God? Yeah, I would say that little things seem big to us when we want them. You know what I'm saying? Like it's funny how something as small as an iPod could actually captivate and chain up and bind and direct the life of something as big as your soul, right? Like you dream about iPods. I'm not saying you dream about an iPod. Maybe yours is a a red Ford Mustang, right? Maybe yours is a vacation to an island somewhere. But, But we have these things that we dream about. We could just have this thing and how little we dream about God. How little we think about His house and worry ourselves about His presence and wanting to draw nearer and nearer to Him. Little things, little things. So big, those little things become that they cause God, the God of hosts, to disappear before our eyes. Little things like boyfriends or girlfriends or grades. Little things like houses, cars, and jobs. All of these little things can hide from us the immensity of who God is. What little thing in your life has blinded you to the Lord of hosts, all-powerful God today? What thing has caused you to think of God as weak or unable or unavailable? Have you forgotten God because you thought God has forgotten you? Could it be that God is maybe this morning in your life as you are distracted, as you are looking away, crushing, actively engaged in your life some little thing that has obstructed your vision from His vast power and might in your life? Could be. Doesn't feel good, but He's he's doing it so you can see more of Him. Might hurt, yet He wants to draw you near to Him. And maybe the Holy Spirit wants you to hear from the Lord of hosts afresh today. Pray so. I hope so. I need it. But what can we do to see God again? What can we do to see God again? Third, consider the solution in verses 7 to 11. Consider the solution. You know, we are given a a solution here in God's Word to the problem. Haggai gives him a solution. And look there in the verses and, and see what it is that he has to say to us. Haggai says, beginning in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Says it again. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Called a drought on it. So a couple of things strike me here. First, just notice that God, this great, vast, mighty, powerful God, desires to be with His people even when they don't desire to be with Him. Do you you see that? They have not troubled themselves to prepare a house for the Lord to come and live amongst them. And yet God says, come and and build the house so I can be amongst you. And God says He hasn't abandoned them. He's been evicted. 
Their failure to obey God's voice has led to the distance that they feel. And God says the reason they haven't ever been able to have enough is because my house that lies in ruins, it's God's house that hasn't been dealt with, and so you're, you're never going to find the satisfaction that you crave. It's only to be found in my house, and you're looking for it in your house. Wrong place. Not only that, verse 11, notice, or verse 10, notice he also says, the reason, therefore the heavens above withheld their due, and the earth has withheld its produce. God's people presumed upon God's grace. And they, they, they believe the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. We know that from the Bible. And yet, and yet, God says, you have been withheld from because of the way that you've responded to me. You've been disobedient. It's resulted in distance between us. See, God actually withholds His grace from His people to awaken them to Himself. They're spiritually numb. Satisfied with building tents for themselves instead of a kingdom for God. And there's a problem, right? The short-sighted, small ambition, if you ask me. And, and just maybe the consequences of their sins have caused them to look elsewhere for help. Maybe they're not looking to Yahweh anymore. Maybe they're not looking to the God of Israel. I mean, the destruction of the temple meant the topic of the temple was more an issue of shame than hope for them, right? I mean, they're looking over at where the glorious temple once stood, and now it stands in disrepair and shambles. And it's an embarrassment to the former glory of what they had been. And a reminder, a constant reminder, you have failed. You were small. You're not great like you used to be. You don't even have the money to fix it anymore. Not if you want to get the granite countertops. I mean, the destruction of the temple, it was... It was a shame for them. The temple's destruction was, catch this, a consequence of the sin of God's people neglecting Him, disobeying Him, and turning to other gods. Which seems to have resulted, their sin seems to have resulted in them neglecting Him even more. Do you see the cycle? So I've sinned, and and there's a consequence. And so like I've I've given up a little bit more, I'm going to sin more to make this right. It's kind of the stupidity of sin and the way that we fall into those those, um, those, those cycles of thinking that we can get ourselves out our own way rather than by obeying God and turning to Him. Or maybe it's, it's not that. Maybe they've simply become angry or sad of the events of their lives not playing out the way they had hoped to. Because making them become spiritual nomads looking for other gods. But God's pursuing a people that aren't pursuing Him. Strikes me. What kind of God is this that would pursue a little remnant like that? What kind of heart does a God like that have for His people? He's not like us. He's different than us. He's not looking for what He can get out. He's relatedly committed to them. And the second thing here is, it's fascinating. It's fascinating here in verses 7-8 to that God invites His people to consider their ways again. But notice this time, in these verses, He calls them to rebuild His house. Why? That God may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Do you see that? They've been living for their own pleasure and coming up wanting for 16 years, but God is still for them and invites them to build a house for Himself, promising that He will take pleasure in it and that His glory will once again dwell with His people. 
See, this glory that He is promising them is the manifest presence of God amongst the nations. The the thing that I am promising you, if you will just obey Me, is not something small that's like in your apartment, you know, in this community where nobody can see you. I want you to build something that is going to be visible to the nations, bringing about blessings to the world around you. You need to get a bigger vision for what God's made you for. God promises His very glory. God is telling them if they will repent, He would delight in returning His presence to them. What a promise! This had to be a welcome news to small, beaten, weak people. They were but a remnant of the former people of God at this point in history. They were the small part of the small kingdom of Judah, the leftovers. Right? Anybody here like leftovers like more than the normal stuff? You know what I'm talking about? You've had a good dinner, like you, you take leftovers, you put them in the fridge. Is the, are the leftovers better? Okay, sometimes they do taste better, that's true. But they're usually smaller if it's really good, right? The remnant's smaller. Less impressive. Not as warm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a less impressive part. And that's what the remnant was. They, less impressive in the eyes of the world. And yet, they drew the attention of the Lord of hosts. God Almighty. And yet the Lord of hosts promises His powerful presence with this people. What in the world could be more valuable than that? I mean, if you're living in a place and you're trying to make it day in and day out and you're living for just what's before you and, and, and you're offered, hey, you know, I could give you a car, the, the job of your dreams, a dream vacation, you know, great, great retirement. What is it you want? Like, how about this? How about the very presence of the God who made you? How about His presence amongst you day in and day out providing for you, protecting you, providing for all of your needs? Nothing better than that. See, because God isn't needy, He's happy to dwell with those who have nothing. God doesn't need anything from us. What in the world could be more valuable than what God has for us? He doesn't need anything from us. There's a a response that He does call for from us. And we find that in verses uh, 12 to the end. Uh, First, notice and consider the responses of God's remnant and the Lord of hosts. Notice the responses. Uh, first, we see God's people respond in verse 12. Look there with me. He says, get to work, build in my house. And what do they say in verse, what happens in verse 12? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. Now, the remnant of Israel obeyed God's voice. That's what God's people do. They obey God's voice. They hear God's voice and they obey God's voice. In fact, Jesus said that that's how you'll know His disciples. He says, my my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Now, please hear me. God's people, they sin. First John tells us, he who says he's without sin is a liar. But we're called to repent of sin and listen to and respond to God's voice. So God's people not only sin, but God's people also respond to God's Word. And notice that they also feared God. Now what do you think that means? 
that they feared God. Maybe you read that and you're thinking to yourself, like, fear in the sense of some, like, scary movie that you've seen or something, where they're just trying to, like, completely wig you out. And maybe you're thinking of, like, some horror flick, or you have uh, this picture of some great enemy that comes in and is merciless, and that's the kind of fear that we feel. But that's, that's not the kind of fear that, that God's talking about here. That's not what Haggai has in mind. He's talking about a kind of fear that speaks of a type of reverence and respect and honor that anyone would have if they actually were to come as a finite creature made by God before their Creator God standing before them as a great Lord of hosts with all power. I mean, what other response do you have but to tremble before someone that great? It's not that you're fearful that he's like against you you're just standing in awe of the massive awesomeness of who he is and that's exactly what it means these people the reason they feared is because they really saw God for who God was and maybe today the reason that it's hard for us to understand what this word for fear means is we really haven't seen God in this way that calls us to shake to our core God is an amazing powerful God. There is no being like Him. We're not ready to worship before we've seen the massive awesomeness of the power of God. That's exactly what the people of Israel as a whole saw on that day. Can you imagine? A whole nation of people seeing God as God is, worshiping God, being fearful. I long for that day. It's going to be a good day, isn't it? Jesus shows up. This is a small foreshadowing of what's coming for you and me could be done there. Let me just ask you this. When was the last time your world and your way of life was shaken by God? When were you actually moved and compelled by God to live for God in ways that cost you everything? Here God is calling merely for their obedience before the most powerful being in all the universe. Friend, when was the last time you were shaken by God? And let me just ask you, are you okay with that? Is that that the way that you want to approach God? All-powerful God, I'm going to leave the same as I was when I came. No, I believe that all of us, each of us, desires to be changed by that God. We want Him to make Him what He wants us to be. A people to bring glory to His name. But catch this, God promises here in this text, He promises to meet this people who have responded in obedience to Him in a mighty way. He says that if they will turn their way of life around and obey God, great things are coming. They won't be alone. Catch what He says in verses 13 to 15. Notice God's response to God's people. This is an amazing response. They obey, they fear God, Verse 13, here's what God does. He sends a prophet. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. You may have forgotten me. You may have thought I've abandoned you. You may have thought you've gotten rid of me. But catch this, I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, Maybe a coward the day before. And the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, maybe having an identity crisis. 
and the spirit of all the remnant of the people who were hopeless, God's spirit came upon them and changed them and moved them to be a different people than they were the day before. Do you see this? Did you catch that? Their obedient response was met by the Holy Spirit stirring them up to work on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They're going to work like God told them to. They're not going to work alone. They're not just working with their own efforts. The Holy Spirit is actually at work in them to do what He has commanded them to do. Isn't that incredible? When God calls us to obey Him, He doesn't call us to obey Him and leave Him alone. His Spirit meets us in our faithfulness. See, God's presence showed up, we're told here, even before the temple was built and they were done with the obedience that they had set forth to do for God. They just started. They just made that that move and the Spirit met them and worked through them. And 23 days later, they got to work. Probably lots of planning, probably lots of getting materials ready, lots of praying, worshiping. They got to work. What does this mean for us? Well, see, I think this neglect of the temple at this point or redemptive history, it, we, need to, we need to pay attention. We don't have a temple that we're called to rebuild. Now, I was recently in Jerusalem. And, <clears throat> and the Jews actually have plans to rebuild the temple. Dreams and hopes, plans to rebuild the temple, have hopes of uh, rebuilding it. They even believe they, or say they have the Ark of the Covenant that they found. Right? So they've got all these plans. But friends, let me just say this. As Christians, we have something better than the temple to meet God through. See, we have Jesus, who is the Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And you'll remember that Jesus said that the temple really was a sign that was preparing for future believers something greater that was to come, the coming Christ. Jesus told us that in John 2. After Jesus cleansed the temple of all of the money changers, the Jews asked him for a sign that explained what he was doing. And he said, here's your sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Now at that point, the Jews kind of lost their minds. They were like, that's insanity. It took us 46 years to build this. How are you going to rebuild that in three days? Like nobody can do that. But we find in John 2.21 that Jesus clarifies what he meant. Saying, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body, the place where folks would come to meet with God and come before God in a way that came with closeness and presence and intimacy that they had never known before would come through the work of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ and being united with Christ himself by faith. Jesus is God's ultimate word from heaven on how to draw near to God. See, Jesus came and lived a life of perfect obedience, died a sacrificial death for you and me and our sins on the cross, and was raised from the dead to declare that anyone who would repent from living a way of life that was not committed to, focused on Christ, to living for Christ, would be promised eternal life with God forever. And that they can now, in Christ, draw near to God than they ever could in that temple of bricks and stones. See, this morning... You've got something better than a temple. You have God's Son. And He invites you to draw near to God. And that's exactly the reality that God wants to awaken us to this morning. See, God awakens His people to work with the vision of Himself. And that is Christ, the God-man, who came for us. 
And because he is uh, who he is, we ought to be motivated to work from him in a way that brings glory to him. Now, here's what that means for, for you and me. I've uh, got a few just ways that I want to close, wrap this up with application. First is, uh, if you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's not your Savior. Uh, he's not your Lord. I just want to encourage you this morning to, to look at the reality of what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Jesus is not just another man. He is not just another prophet. Jesus is the Son of God who came down to earth and took on flesh. He is fully God. He is fully man. And, and that is the God-man whom we must put our faith in. And if you want a spiritual uh, experience with God, there is no other place to go but through Jesus Christ. If you want to be united with God, if you want to have forgiveness with God for your sins, if you want to have right relationship with Him, the only way to have that is through putting your faith in Christ's work for you at the cross and resurrection. Friends, you must put your faith in Him if you want to have a spiritual life. It's only, it's only in Christ that God promises to send His Spirit and to seal it upon your heart so that you actually become a place where God's presence dwells. He dwells with you. And that means that that's you today. You need to take that first step of faith by confessing your sins, that you are a sinner hopeless before God without forgiveness that can only be found in God's Son and what God's Son has done from you. Making a commitment to turning from living for selfish pleasures and passions and whatever else it is that you're living for to living for Jesus, God's Son, God's King. God promises that if you do that today, you will become a child of God. He promises you eternal life. Friend, if, if that's you today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, don't leave here without talking to me or to one of the other Christians in this room. We would love to share with you how you can experience the life-changing presence of the Spirit of God in your life. But for those of us who are Christians, I think this text has something to say as well. Christian, we need to think about this morning what things are distracting us from the presence of God. What it means to be with God, commune with God, being in right relationship with Him. I know in Jesus we, we have His presence, His Spirit never leaves us. We're promised that Matthew 28, 20 and elsewhere. But, but we know that there is a sense in which uh, when we sin, we feel distance from God. And at other times, we feel distance from God. And then there's times where we feel close to God and we feel distance when we're not obedient. And whenever we are obedient, we sense a kind of closeness and empowerment of the Spirit. Just I don't know how to explain it. We just know that it works that way. So what is it that's distracting you today from that that would cause you to sacrifice being near to God? And maybe it's, it's money. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe it's a, a relationship that's not healthy. And what would you sacrifice for the presence of God? There's nothing worth it. You know, maybe this morning you need somebody that's just an accountability partner. You've got weaknesses that you need help with. And we've got brothers and sisters in this room who would love to come alongside you, encourage you as you encourage them to be faithful before God and seek His presence. You know, maybe it's the, the difficulties of this life, bills or sickness uh, that have distracted you. Uh, maybe it's Fox News or Netflix or baseball or social media. It's got you distracted. You're not focusing on the things that you should. And sometimes you need to get rid of it, and sometimes you just need to mature in your view of how you're using it. And for instance, like my family, uh, my wife, uh, she affectionately calls my phone um, my girlfriend. Now, let me just explain. If you ever hear my wife ask about my girlfriend, she's talking about my phone. Okay? Uh, that's happened before, and somebody's like, his girlfriend? The pastor has a girlfriend? No, the pastor doesn't have a girlfriend. He has a phone that his wife jokes with him about being his girlfriend because he spends so much time with her. 
And so, um, and so I, I all of a sudden like realized, you know, like, hey, this is not healthy for my relationship with my family. And so we just started like, hey, when we're with the family, uh, we put this down and we're together and meals and stuff, we put it down. And it's amazing how relationship is helped when you're not distracted, right, with humans. Uh, it works the same way with God. Like if you can focus on God, you can get away, and you can be quiet, or you can spend time with other Christians where you're focusing on God and His glory and His greatness. It's amazing how communication lines pick up and things get better. Sometimes we just need to get rid of or manage certain things in such a way that we aren't distracted in ways that are unhelpful. And also, Christian, uh, you need to fight not to forget the greatness of God. I think that's one thing we see here clearly in the text. Uh, we are uh, easily distracted. Squirrel. Easily. Uh, all kinds of things distract us. And we need to fight. It's a fight. It's a war. Day by day. For you, for me, for pastors. There's nobody that's super spiritual enough that they don't have to fight to be in the presence of God every day. You're not going to get to that place. That's why Jesus has to come back. And so you need to fight. How do you fight? You fight through reading God's Word. You need to hear from God. That is the true north. If you want to be with God, you need to hear from God. You know, get, if you don't like to read, get audio tapes of the Bible. CD tapes not, don't exist, uh, like A-tracks. Uh, think uh, MP3s, you know. Uh, put it in your car, listen to it where you go, immerse yourself in the Word of God. You need to hear from Him so that you learn not to be distracted from what He said. You need to pray and ask for God's presence. Ask for Him to help you, encourage you, strengthen you, that His Spirit will be strong with you, leading you not to sin, but leading you to bring glory to His name. We need to spend time as Christians fighting by being in a relationship with other Christians who are holding us accountable. We need to fast. We need to fast. We need to spend days of fasting where we meditate on God's Word. Not because it's some kind of magical activity, but just because our minds and bodies need to be recalibrated to the glory of God. Sometimes our diets distract us from that. Our hearts wander from God long before the works of our hands do. And so we need to keep our attentions focused. Philippians 2.12-13, Paul says that we need to fight. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well... Because, because God is awesomely powerful. In His presence, we, we should fear and tremble, right? But He goes on and gives a promise. For it is God who is at work in you, both to act and to work for His good purposes. His good pleasure. See, God's at work in you. Same thing with Haggai. Remember, they went to build the temple and the Spirit came and empowered them to do God's work? Here the New Testament says, I'm making the same promise to you. Get to work and I'm working in you. And then also... We need to think about this as a local church, finally, and that's, Paul says a local church is a place where we build up the temple today, this point in redemption, in redemptive history. In Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, you'll remember when Paul says church, he's thinking about people, not steeple, right? He's thinking about the collective group of Christians gathered together around God's word. And he says loving God means loving his people and building them up. That's the work that we're committing ourselves to, building one another up. So Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 speaks to a bunch of people who were not Jews. And he says, so then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Did you catch that? In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See that? Not, not small things, big things, one another, building into one another so that we become a place where God dwells. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, so with yourselves, since you were eager of, for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Excel in building up the church. If you want to see the Spirit work, love one another. You want to see the, the Spirit go crazy doing awesome stuff, you need to love each other. Like that's the way the Spirit, that's what, what He does. He loves to see you loving one another as Christ has loved you. So what does that mean for you today? Well, it means uh, if you're not a member, let me encourage you to join our body in membership. It's completely voluntary. Uh, we don't take blood samples or anything like that. Uh, but we do want you to be committed to us and us to be committed to you because we believe that it brings glory to God and is a spiritual act of worship. We also encourage you to pray through our directory for one another. Ways that we love one another. Pray for one another. Uh, give faithfully to help advance the gospel with Trinity Bible Church. Be a part of what we're doing. Join a community group. Get involved in the lives of others and let them know you and you know them. Let them walk in life together with you. Serve with others. We have all kinds of ministries here. Stephen's ministry. We've got women's ministries. All kinds of opportunities to serve. Come and serve alongside others to the glory of God. Sacrifice and sense the Holy Spirit's good pleasure in your life. Let me just say, we know that church is messy. It's not all unicorns and rainbows if you commit yourself to other people because we're all sinners, right? But you will find that God really does keep His promise to meet with you in your labors at building up His church. He will do great things. Now let's pray to that great God. Will you pray with me?